This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Three Mentors, Warrior Theodore of the Spartans, The Battle for the Soul. And the author is Theodore Harris. And Ted joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ted. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us. Now, I'm going to read just a short uh, sentence that you wrote concerning how you would introduce your book to a friend. And you say, it's a great book of one of the most patriotic that would make you laugh and cry at the same time. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I've done quite a bit, Steve. Yeah, you've been through it. And this is your autobiography. And so Uh, we're going to talk about what was going on, oh, especially back during the uh, President Nixon years, right? Yes. Well, tell us. First of all, were you in the Air Force at that time? Uh, yes. And there was a lot of war uh, protests going on. Yes. Uh, when I, well, I first got the attention of President Nixon in high school when we started a movement to end gang violence. Then I went into the Air Force. And that was in Buffalo, New York. Yes, in Buffalo, New York. And after I joined the Air Force, I was... Uh, in tech school at Shepherd Air Force Base. And they gave us a briefing on how to deal with war protesters. You know, and how if they spit on your uniform, you're just supposed to uh, keep, on, keep on walking because it wipes off. Well, I didn't feel that was right. I was proud to serve my nation, proud to wear the Air Force Blues. So I set up a meeting with the peace protesters at uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport on Christmas Eve in 2003. And uh, they were impressed with uh, what I was saying. And uh, they had a, uh, what you would call a, the leader. He showed up like an hour, uh, hour late and disavowed any knowledge of everything we had agreed to which was the Christmas truce for the, for the airmen near Shepherd Air Force Base. Anyway, he spit on my uniform, and I knocked him out with one punch. And it happened that uh, Christmas Eve, their entire base was on the move. And when I got back to base, Steve, let me tell you, President Nixon was so upset with me, they were going to kick me out the service. What uh, Nixon was upset about was the fact that I used troops under the command of the President of the United States of America to basically hijack the airport. And there was no, he wasn't accepting any excuses. And technically that is what happened because the troops were on the move. And it just so happens it was a blizzard that night, so everybody was stuck there. And, uh... It's sort of funny. President Nixon uh, said that he didn't know what to do with the biggest doggone hero and the biggest doggone 
fool at the same time. <laughs> well, he recognized that you were standing up for American soldiers, but at the same time, I guess uh, you probably uh, broke a, a, a ruler tool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> and this was when again? Uh, Christmas Eve, 1973. Christmas Eve. Dallas, Dallas Fort Worth Air Force, huh? Air Airport. Yeah. Now, you were charged with, what, treason, mutiny, rallying the troops to mutiny, <laughs> hijacking yeah, DFW? That, that's yeah, that's, that's what they said, but they decided to let me go. They decided to let you go. Yeah, because Nixon didn't know what to do with the biggest hero and the biggest fool at the same time. Now, what's this about Nixon's tapes that are going to be released in uh, 2024? Well, that that would go to the uh, uh, the core of uh, of the book, basically. All right, my relationship with President Nixon is so that'll secret. prove everything you're saying is what you're. you're oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, tell us, tell, tell us about. Uh, this uh, is it, Burgard Vocational High School. Oh, Burgard Vocational High School in Buffalo, New York. It's a New York school, state school of transportation. At the time, uh, uh, they taught aviation. It was founded by Air Force aces and crew chiefs from World War One, and it had a long line of. Uh, it built like the. Uh, P-40 Hellcat that's known as the Flying Tigers. They've done a lot, a lot of work in aviation and a lot of work for the military. In fact, at Burgard in 1969, we were the only high school in the nation to have an Armed Forces Day program where we invited uh, all five uh, Armed forces to come uh, speak at our school. So this was a particularly very uh, challenging time for those of you who uh, believed in the military uh, because of all the war protesters uh, against Viet the Vietnam War. Yes, exactly. You you weren't you, know, you weren't like that much probably. Your group was uh, not in the best of. Uh, a frame of mind no, of most in, people. In, in fact, it offered the young people in the city of Buffalo a way out. How is you that? Know? Well, by joining the service, they could travel, you know, travel the world, serve their country, and establish their independence. In, in, in fact, uh, my senior year, uh, they had a big uh, banquet downtown, a big luncheon, rather, and introduced me for uh, finding over 250 volunteers for the for the armed forces of the United States. So you were you were recruiting people at a young age. Yes, well, it was really the program, and patriotic people heard about what we were doing, and and uh, enlisted. Now you also you also say that you have met all the joint chiefs and uh, of course serving with the best of the best. I'm sure you have a lot of great friends in the military. Oh yes, yes. In fact, uh, uh, last year I visited the Pentagon to greet wounded warriors. But the, but 
back to the book, uh, I had no idea. Here I was, just a young man, 20 years old, and I had no idea why the Joint Chiefs and everybody were, were interested in me. Well, I already had the attention of the president, so I guess everybody would be. <laughs> Sounds like they would, yes. If you get the president's attention, others are going to know about you. Oh, yes. Now, what's this, what's this about taking on the military-industrial complex? What is that all about? Well, after I got out of the service, I started a business called Verval uh, Enterprises, which still exists to this day. But I was forced out of that company and started my own business called Quality Machining Two Company, where I specialized in prototype development and R and D work. You know, working with the government. In fact, uh, I built the first two multi-compression warheads successfully test fired. You know, and like I said, my, you know, my story is. is uh, Odyssey, you know, it, it goes from extreme highs to extreme lows. Well, after they test-fired it, the government came in and took everything uh, from me, from the original invent inventor, and, you know, it went into black ops. So did you get paid for your service? No. They just took your patents and everything? Well, I didn't have a patent. The, the original designer uh, had the patent, and I built the prototype and wrote the manufacturing process for it. And uh, they successfully test-fired two rounds at England Air Force Base. The, what happened, they had two big, let's say, 12-foot concrete blocks. And... They fired the missile through the first block, and it went through the second block and exploded. And that had never been done before? Never been done before. So how, had, how, how did you deal with uh, basically being ripped off by the government? The real ripoff came with the universal chalk, okay? Which, uh, you know how they have missile trailers and everybody... Use Missile Company, uh, Mark Marietta, uh, McDonnell Douglas, they all build bombs and missiles. And the universal chalk would be an item to steady the missile while it's being transported. Uh, basically what happened, it made 56 items obsolete, and the entire military-industrial complex came after me, put me out of business. Did you ever get reimbursed, compensated in any way? Uh, no. Another uh, thing that you talk about is you call it walking the trail of woe for refusing to denounce President Reagan. Oh, man, that, that, no, that was something else. There again, it all ties in with uh, uh, the military-industrial complex and uh, the Congressional Black Caucus. See, I, I was always an idea person, outside the box, so to speak. And a lot of things I considered to be simple, you know, such as the idea, I would just let it go, even though it was inter inter intellectual property. 
and I met with the Congressional Bear Caucus in 1981, and they told me that I was going to be, you know, become a millionaire for, for my intellectual property for the things I've done with the Air Force. And I thought it was cool, but I had to denounce President Reagan and swear allegiance to them. And they had problems with Martin Luther King. Believe it or not, they didn't even support the King holiday. They were mad with Stevie Wonder and, and everybody involved. The Black Caucus didn't support Martin Luther King holiday? No, they didn't. Oh, man, they, they hated the very idea that a person they knew was going to be honored in such a way. Why is that? Uh, because they knew each other. In, in other words, let's say a friend of yours was going to be honored with a national holiday where the nation would have to uh, uh, combine presidential holidays in order for him to receive that award. And you know this guy, and you know his secrets, and you say, no, he's not all that, he's not worth it. Uh, they, just, they, they were in total opposition. But they just couldn't stop Stevie Wonder or Hosea Williams. You have another... Go ahead. Oh, see, the truth behind the King assassination was all political. Okay, if if you remember your history, uh, Johnson re resigned on March 31st. On the 1st of April, the news media came out and wondered if uh, Martin Luther King was going to run for vice president or whatever. So on, but on the 4th, it, on the third, they said, well, is Martin Luther King going to lead 20 million black voters back to the Republican Party? That's when they asked that question. That's when uh, he realized he was, he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. And he died on the 4th of April. He had too much power, too much influence over, uh, over the nation. Give us a closing thought Ted, about your book, what you know? Why should our listeners buy your book? Well, it's it's a it's a dynamic uh, true story. Uh, I've done quite a bit, you know. As a as a seventeen year old kid, when you get to the present, I mean, the attention of uh, President Nixon. Uh, uh, you, you've done something good and unique, and I've done quite a bit. In fact, uh, yesterday, right after the Super Bowl, they aired a special program on WJLC here in Savannah, Georgia, titled uh, Champions of Change. I was the 11th person in two years selected to receive that honor, and they showed an interview of my work as the flag man traveling the nation, passing out flags and thanking veterans for their service to our nation. And uh, I'm still that same little patriotic kid at heart. And next week I'm going to meet, uh, have a reunion with a, a veteran. When I was 11 years old, took me to VA hospital, to the VA hospital, in Buffalo, New York, so I could listen to the veterans and 
hear their stories of heroism and service and sacrifice. So I'm still active. I was one of two American veterans selected to, in a national tribute uh, for former President Ronald Reagan doing his funeral. So, oh, global tribute, I mean to say. They, I was told by the news agency that we want your face, because of your patriotism, we want your face to be the first face they see around the world. And uh, so when people woke up in Japan, China, Australia, Israel, they made sure my face was the first face that they, they saw in that little telecast. And the reason that's you know that's true is because it was done by the nation's only high-definition station at that time, at the time of his funeral, and the rest of the world was already on high-definition TV. Well, thank you, Ted, so much, and congratulations, and tell us how to get your book. Oh, you can order it uh, from Arthur House or Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, it's, it's available on the Internet. Well, thank you very, very much. And thank you, Steve, and it's been a pleasure. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. We we covered a lot of ground. Well, that's very good. That's what we're supposed to do. So thank you again. That was Theodore Harris. He is the author of his book, The Three Mentors, Warrior Theodore of the Spartans, The Battle for the Soul. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, I'm a Nobody Becomes Somebody, book one in the I'm a Nobody series. 
And the author is Brenda Pogue, and Brenda joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Brenda. Hello, how are you doing? Good to have you with us now. I'm going to read your statement of introduction about your book. It's just a couple of sentences. You say, I'm a Nobody is a faith-based book that you hope will get children to question both sides of the issue of bullying. And it's a great beginner's chapter book. So why did you write this book? Well, um, it wasn't until that I had children of my own that I began to think back to my early school years. And I remember always feeling like a nobody. I was never the pretty girl, never the smart girl, never the athletic girl. I was always the girl that was at the end of everybody's jokes, um, always being told I would never be anyone important, never amount to anything. And I just remember thinking, I hope that my kids do not have to go through the emotional bullying that I had to endure as a child. So obviously that had a great impact on you because you can remember all those feelings today. Yes, it has impacted me even in my adult life to the point that it's hard for me to reach out and make friends. I have a trust issue. So I decided to write a book and actually writing the book has helped me, you know, start to reach out and branch out and become more sure of myself. Well, I can remember as a young child having uh, someone that was always picking on me, you know, always pushing me around and 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 boy it was and, and and it does you can it's that kind of experience that has a great great negative impact and you wonder you know if if you can ever get beyond it uh, even at that time i remember going to school and i was afraid of this kid yes i remember i dreaded waking up and having to go to school and because i didn't want to deal with my bully i would have loved school had it not been for the bully that i had to deal with so this story, uh, in fact, we the name of the first grader, her name is Ima. <laughs> and, of course, that, yes, there, there is the title of the book, Ima, Nobody. You know, I mean, and, of course, you say Ima, Nobody, Become Somebody. So there's hope in your book. There's actual uh, overcoming uh, the fears, right? Yes, sir, there is hope. And she finds a lot of her strength in God. Like I said, it's a faith-based book. And, you know, she turns to God in the book, and he gives her the strength that she needs. And she overcomes, you know, her bullying issue with Billy. Of course, it's still there, but she feels better about it. In your beginning uh, chapter, I'll read a little bit. It says, Ima is a first grader who is not quite like everybody else. Ima has red, tatty hair all in a knot atop her head, her Two front teeth stick straight out, and she has a huge gap between them. Every time she talks, she lets out a little whistle. She has orange freckles across the bridge of her nose. Her long legs look rather awkward, and her knobby knees uh, seem to knock together every time she walks. As if that wasn't bad enough, her last name is Nobody. I'm a nobody. (laughs) Yes, sir. So you pretty much have uh, gone to the real extreme to make a point and then to help kids to kind of walk through this story of I'm a nobody and see that even though their situation may be uh, kind of uh, a feeling that they can't overcome, but they can because you help them see how I'm a nobody overcomes all that she's uh, up against. Right, exactly. If they read the book, they'll learn that I'm a realizer that you can't let someone define who you are. You get to define who you are. 
So you don't really have to listen to those kids that are telling you that you're not important. Um, you know, God didn't make us not important. Each one of us is special. And you say that she, she really, deep down, is a very strong girl, right? She is a strong little girl, you know. She, she finds her strength through God, and she's, you know, just, she's kind of stubborn in the way that she's not going to take everything that Billy has to tell her. Um, she knows that, that she is someone important deep down. Now, Billy, you describes as a loud, obnoxious bully. Why, why is Billy this way? You know, that's the thing I'm hoping kids will question is, why is Billy so mean? That was one of the questions I always wondered about my bully at school is what makes him that way? Maybe it can get kids to question both sides of the issue. You know, why is he so mean? What makes him that way? Is he dealing with something at home? Um, Is he dealing with someone bullying him maybe at a higher grade level or something? Um, I'm just hoping that it will make kids ask questions. So we're trying to help kids to really look at others in a much different way, and not from their own fearful way, but to try to see, you know, see in the other uh, person, that person who is the bully, trying to understand them. Now that's that's probably uh, a great a, a great step for a child, but at the same time, it will change their whole experience, right? Right. That's what that's what I think. So you know, understanding it may help them to understand, you know, understanding the bully may help them understand why the bully acts out the way that he does or she does. And of course, we all need friends. And Ima has a good friend. Her best friend is, is her name Junie? Junie Kakuni, yes. Junie Kakuni. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I love it. So tell us about Junie. Well, Junie is a very strong-minded, strong-willed little girl, and she and Ima are in the classroom, and Billy starts, you know, coming down on Ima, and Junie looks at her and basically, you know, asks her, are you going to take that from him? And then she stands up for Ima, and then Ima realizes then, you know, when she tells Billy, you know, you're not going to talk to her that way, basically, and Ima realizes that she has a friend in Junie, and they become the best of friends, and they stick together everywhere that they go. So Junie really gives... I'm a, a lot of confidence and strength because she won't she won't tolerate Billy. Junie will not tolerate Billy, and she teaches Ima that she doesn't have to accept that kind of um, mean behavior to stand up for herself. So in Chapter 6 is where Ima has had it, right? She's had enough. She has had enough in Chapter 6, yes. In Chapter 6, Ima has had enough, and she decides to turn to God in a prayer and it's a, a very childlike prayer. I think all of us at one time has said a prayer similar to Ima's. But she asked that God give Billy the chicken pox. Um, <laughs> she's just hoping that he gets a chicken pox so he doesn't have to come to school and she doesn't have to deal with him. And of course, you know, God does not answer her prayer in that way. And, but he does come through for Ima in his own way in the end of the book. Well, we won't give away how he comes to her rescue. But as you say, you know, often the things that we ask for, God knows better to answer all our prayers yes. in the way we think they should be answered, right? <laughs> so, right, but, right. But he does and will answer prayers, and, and that's a big theme of your book, isn't it, to have that kind of faith? It is, you know, and I think it's important that kids understand you may ask for something for God or pray, and sometimes his answer is simply wait. You know, you're eventually going to get an answer to your prayer, but sometimes it's just wait. Well, it's amazing when you think that uh, most of us have probably gone through a similar experience that you had when you were growing up, and 
the important thing is, as you put it, I decided to take a negative thing that happened in my life and turn it into a positive. And so thus the book. Yes. Yes. And I'm actually, you know, I was very excited about the book when I completed it and, and I feel really great about it. And I haven't had any, anyone tell me that they don't like the book. So I'm hoping that it'll open doors for kids and, have them go to someone if they're being bullied at school and, and say that they can relate to Ima in the book and maybe it'll open doors for communication. Now, what age group is this book aimed at? It's aimed towards children 8 to 12 years of age. But I have, however, had a lot of adults tell me that they've read the book and that they think it's a very clever idea and how it reaches out to children and that they love it. And again, one of your themes, along with having faith in God and asking Him for help, is... Do not let someone else define who you are. That's, that's a dominant theme in this book, correct? It is. Yes, it is. And we I think ha- it's important. These kids have to decide that they're going to be who they're going to be. Exactly. It's up to you to be who you want to become. Don't let someone tell you that you're something and then, you know, give in to what they tell you and become something that you know that you're better than. Is there any other characters in the book that you'd like to mention? Um, well, there's a, a character named Mr. Walker, who is the school principal. And um, he's, you know, very down-to-earth principal. He catches the kids in a, a food fight at school, and unfortunately the food lands on him. And um, so he, you know, has to take the kids into the office. And I think that's kind of a funny part of the book because, you know, you really don't think about a food fight landing on the school principal. And uh, it's just a lot of humor in the book. A lot of humor. What were some of the more challenging parts of writing this book? What What were you, uh, you know, what was most challenging to you? The most challenging part to me was probably looking back and just having to go over my uh, my past issues with bullying. It was very hard because it, it brought back a lot of emotions, back to the feelings of being bullied in school. That would be the most challenging for me. Now, tell us about this series. This is the first book, uh, book one in the I'm a Nobody series, and you're already uh, writing the second book. Tell us about your series and where you are are going to take us on this emotional journey. Well, the the series is um, basically it's an I'm a Nobody series, of course, and I'm currently writing the second book. And I will continue to introduce kids to God. I feel that that's important. And, you know, in in my second series, they'll be introduced to Psalms in the Bible. Um, My main goal is, one, don't let someone define who you are. And two, you know, turn to God. He's always there. So that will be the theme of the book, is is a faith-based book that introduces children to God. Brenda, tell us how... to discover a little bit about themselves. Brenda, tell us how to get your book. You can find my book at barnesandnobles.com, amazon.com. It is also through Author House, um, since I self-published. And those are the, the three places that would probably be your best bet. Do you have a website? I do. It's imanobody.net, and there's a children's contest on there. They can uh, get a chance to have the author come to their school and do a book signing, and the child wins a free book. We appreciate it, Brenda, so much, you sharing your book with us on this edition of Author Talk. I appreciate you taking the time. That was Brenda Pogue. She is the author of her book, her children's book, first in the series called I'm a Nobody Becomes Somebody, book one. 
in the I'm a Nobody series. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Wealth of Enterprises, A New Foundation for Economics and Management, and the author is William T. Nolan, and we welcome T, as he is called, T, to this Author Talk show. So, hello, T. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Good to have you with us. Now, this is what you wrote introducing your book to a friend in a sentence or two. You put it this way, my book lays a new foundation for economics and management and defines for the first time the enterprise as the universal concept that embraces all human activity. It is both theoretical and practical and will help the reader to better manage and govern any enterprise. That's a bold and comprehensive statement, and we'll get into why you believe you've accomplished a uh, a rather big breakthrough in this whole idea of enterprise, but why write the book in the first place, T? Well, the reason I wrote it um, in the first place is because I've done corporate turnarounds and restructurings all my life, well, all my professional life for the last 30 or so years, and I began to realize that there was uh, a common structure to all enterprises, uh, corporations, businesses, family enterprises, and whatnot. And when you are restructuring something, you have to know what the basic structure is. Uh, Just like the basic structure of the human body is common throughout the world, uh, you know, uh, all races and and whatnot have the same same structure, uh, skeleton and organs and whatnot. And the same is true with all forms of of human organization. Uh, And I realized that there was some misunderstanding 
uh, you know, about it. People think that their organization is unique, but the underlying structure is the same. Just like for a human being, you, you may feel like you're the only person who's ever had this type of uh, illness before, or cancer or, or, you know, or pneumonia, but in fact, millions of other people have had the same because essentially, you know, the disease is a common, you know, throughout humanity. And so if you're going to cure that disease, you as, a, as the doctor or as the CEO of a company have to know what the structure of the, of the enterprise is so that you can make the various, um, you know, changes uh, in the enterprise so that it works properly. And you say that you did a lot of research and you found a big black hole, basically, uh, about what you addressed. Well, that's, that's exactly correct. Uh, several Nobel Prize winners have said that the, the firm of the enterprise has never been properly defined. Uh, and uh, I set about defining it, and I believe that I've come up with a definition of what the enterprise is, what the firm is, and, uh, and how it's structured and, and how, it, how it works. Uh, I believe that the, the reason that they, couldn't, they did not understand uh, or could not come to a definition of, of the firm is because uh, they were approaching it piecemeal, and I've tried to approach the you know the, the concept of the firm uh, as a whole, just as you would uh, in holistic medicine. You try to figure out okay, what is the human being all about? I mean, he's skeleton, organs, skin, brain, heart, lungs, emotions, and all that, and all of that goes into you know into making up a a corporate enterprise, just like it does making up a, a human being. And according to you, you took this to this new level, and you make a very bold claim, and I'm sure you're going to uh, help us understand why you say this, but you say that you believe your book, The Wealth of Enterprises, is a complement to a very famous person named Adam Smith, who's called the father of modern economics, and his book, The Wealth of Nations. That's right. It is sort of a bold claim, and I'd love to 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 uh, to have met Adam Smith and and, and discussed it with him. Uh, essentially, what Adam Smith does, and I'm simplifying, you know, his his great work. Uh, he essentially says that the wealth of nations is the sum total of individual economic activity, uh, i.e., the farmer, the baker, the butcher, the you know the the pin makers, etc. And you sum total that, and you get the wealth of of, of a nation. Uh, at his time, there were very few corporations, very few large corporations, and there were some business partnerships, and there were a couple of uh, uh, enterprises that were set up. But if they were, you know, large trading companies, they were licensed by the by the king, uh, and uh, you know, so there were there were not as many real you know corporations as there are today or enterprises. So he didn't really Adam Smith didn't have a real a very good understanding of corporations or much of an appreciation for them. Uh, so he really concentrated on individual economic activity. Uh, however, since then, uh, you know, enterprises, both small and large, both private and, and government, have grown to be the dominant force in an economy. And the way we measure the wealth of, of a nation today is, is through the sum total of, of enterprise activity, not the sum total of, of individual activity. Uh, so the IBMs of the world, and uh, that, that is really what is, we measure their output, and that is what is called gross domestic uh, product. And so that really is the, 
you know, is is the wealth of nations. So, so I've concentrated on that, and I believe that I've I've added something to that thinking to say that the wealth of enterprises uh, is what is really uh, is what we individually create, and then the sum total of the wealth of enterprises then becomes the wealth of nations and the wealth you know the wealth of the world. And you've developed uh, some nomenclature uh, pertaining to enterprise to help best explain it and really uh, to take it to this next level. For example, where Adam Smith talked about division of labor. Now you talk about unity of labor. Now help us to understand what you're saying there. Well, the unity of labor is the companion concept for uh, division of labor. Division of labor is what uh, Adam Smith uh, defined as the basis of all economic activity, um, and actually there had been some thought of you know some development of that thought going all the way back to Plato, you know. But but essentially he developed uh, Adam Smith developed the the division of labor. In other words, uh, in a in a uh, in a society in a small business or a small enterprise, you divided the functions. Uh, and then, uh, and then, just like on an assembly line, and then by dividing those functions, and each person specialized, uh, which was a derivative of the unity of labor, then you had a more efficient uh, form of production, and that's what that's what he said. Now, what I'm saying is that to create these enterprises, you need uh, the concept of the unity of labor, uh, which is the the collective decision of all these individuals to organize themselves uh, to satisfy their mutual interest and therefore to accomplish the common good of the of the enterprise so individuals commit to work together and uh, through that we see the working of the um, you know of the unity of labor and this is actually how people work if they don't commit to work together uh, division of labor doesn't doesn't work you also have developed what you call the enterprise method. Now, now how, do, right. how does that mirror the scientific method? Uh, a lot of people have heard that term before, the scientific method. There's a, a formal approach there, obviously, in, in scientific research and analysis. And So help us understand the enterprise method. Well, the, the enterprise if I use an analogy, is the automobile. Uh, and the enterprise method is how to drive it, how to, you know, how to organize it. Uh, and the enterprise method is the, the framework for analysis and management of every, uh, of every enterprise. Uh, so uh, without a guidance system, without you know, a proper uh, driver behind the wheel, uh, the car won't go anywhere. So the enterprise method is what the, the driver behind the wheel uses to steer and guide the enterprise and hopefully to make, you know, make a profit and, and be successful. Uh, it is essentially the same as the scientific, scientific method, um, and the scientific method was developed uh, centuries ago to, to prove and test hypotheses. Um, and essentially it says that you, you make a hypothesis like the sun rises in the east, okay? So that's a scientific hypothesis. The second, the next step is you observe it. You go out in the morning and you see, yep, yeah, the sun rises in the east. So then you test it. You know, okay, you go, you know, you, you you look at shadows and you look at various evidence that prove, yeah, the sun rose in the east. And then you analyze it and you know, and, and the various things that you go through. And then you adjust, you know, you adjust your hypothesis because sometimes it's you know a little bit 
further toward the north and sometimes it's a little bit further toward the south. And then you repeat the test. You go back the next day or the next month or the next year and lo and behold, it still rises in the east. So that's, that's the, um, you know, the, 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 hypo- the um, scientific method in, in summary form uh, using a very, very simple scientific example, but it works. Um, the enterprise method follows the same process you have a hypothesis which you define a, a customer's need. Uh, you know, uh, people like to watch football games, so that's a customer's need. Uh, you do a market study. You observe it, you know, and you watch them watching football games, and you say, well, they really like to watch football games. Then you test the market, and you see how, you know, how much of a market is there for, you know, watching these football games. So you do market surveys, which is a, you know, market test, just like the hypothesis, you know, the scientific method. And then you evaluate the data, you know, from these tests, which is analyzing it. And then you develop an, a business plan to, you know, to, you know, to provide that product, i.e., television, you know, to watch football games. Uh, and then you repeat it. And over the years, it gets better and better, and your audience grows. And so, you know, your customers uh, like to watch your, uh, your, you know, your your football programs on television. And if you're successful, they continue to grow. So that's that's how the enterprise method parallels the, the scientific method uh, because it basically establishes a, a hypothesis or a customer need, and then you observe, you test, and then you, you, know, you keep repeating. And you, you, you must keep it up in, you know, in business uh, because if you, ever keep, you know, if you ever stop doing this and you take your mind, you know, your, your eye off the customer, then things can change, and you know their preferences may change, and you you'll lose you'll lose your customers. So, um, so that's how it follows the, the scientific method. That's you know that was the, um, the 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 comparison that I that I developed and used, and it and it happens to 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 be valid. Who does your book appeal to, and why? It appeals to professionals and those who want to be professionals. Uh, managers uh, um, uh, of, of enterprises, uh, both public and private. In other words, if 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 you want to be a, uh, a a general manager, a partner, or a CEO of an enterprise, uh, this book will appeal to you. If you if you're a student uh, studying management, this or, or economics, this will appeal to you. Uh, or if you're a, um, a professor, it should appeal to you, and it should appeal to. Uh, also, regulators who are professionals—you uh, know, people in uh, in Washington who set regulations for financial firms and things like that—it uh, it, it will appeal to them, I hope. Well, a very comprehensive work. What was the most challenging part of writing your book? Um, I would say making the whole thing uh, consistent and uh, and balanced, because uh, and. And I believe that we have been able to do that. It took over over five years to write it, uh, and based on thirty years of experience. Uh, but we had to, you know, we had to test various things, uh, you know, to make sure that it was, it was, it was valid. And these assumptions and observations and whatnot. And uh, and I've used this this method, the enterprise method, in uh, in my work over these years. And Every time I use it, every time I use the the structure of the enterprise, uh, we get complete validation. So I would say the most difficult thing was to make sure that every part of the analysis and all the writing was uh, was consistent and supportable by 
real-world uh, experience and real-world uh, activities. And you say that you believe your book is very useful and practical and can be used by enterprise managers worldwide. Yes, because uh, you know, just like uh, a doctor treats a human body, you know, you can get on a plane and go anywhere in the world if you're a medical professional and and, and treat illnesses, broken bones and whatnot. Uh, anywhere, the same. This applies uh, really anywhere. I mean, in China and Europe, um, Japan and and the United States. Uh, Latin America, um, because the structure is the same and uh, the world is becoming a, a more competitive and, and a more unified place, uh, especially in especially in business. Uh, and uh, consequently, these enterprises compete for scarce resources. They they compete for uh, customers. They compete for uh, oil and gas in the ground. They compete for minerals. And these enterprises are, you know, are are structured similarly. They have, you know, they have boards, they have CEOs, they have, uh, you know, uh, business processes where they manufacture and produce a product or a service. Uh, so the 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 more that we know about how uh, to manage our own enterprises and then how our competitors are going to act and react, then the more successful we can be in managing our own enterprise. T, tell us how to get your book. Well, the best way is through uh, through Author House. Uh, you can go to the Author House website, and it's listed there, or um, uh, my website, um, the, thewealthofenterprises.com, uh, has a direct link to the Author House website, and you can get it uh, through that, or you can get it through any of the major book vendors like Amazon and whatnot, um, online uh, vendors. Uh, they all... Uh, have it listed as as well well thank you t thank you so much for being on this edition of author talk uh steve well thank you very much and it was a pleasure uh, uh being your guest that was william t nolan he is the author of his book the wealth of enterprises a new foundation for economics and management 